Hello, and welcome to the Soundweavers podcast. Soundweavers explores the trials and tribulations of small ensemble musicianship through conversations with leading performers and composers. Today's episode features British composer Arthur Keegan. We hope you enjoy. Lovely and wonderful gentlefolk. Welcome back to the Soundweavers podcast. As always, I am your harping host, Dr. Rosanna Moore. And today we are talking with a brilliant and wonderful composer who, believe it or not, is a British composer who I met in Rochester, New York. Two Brits in upstate New York. Who knew that that was a thing that happened? So let's talk a little bit about Arthur Keegan. Well, I know that Arthur started out as a guitarist and went to Bristol University for all of his degrees with a little hiatus when he went to Eastman for a short little bit uh, and writes beautiful music, uh, has written music for my duo, my percussion and harp duo, and for my fluviola harp trio has written wonderful solo works for a number of instrumentalists and works a lot with the wonderful and beautiful art of words. So you're one of our other composers this season who has who works with words, which is a great thing to do. Alongside composing, Arthur also teaches part-time at Middlesex University and in his spare time supposedly plays cricket really badly. So there's nothing much more British than that. Without further ado, hi, Arthur. Thank you for joining me this lovely evening for you and morning for me. <laughs> evening for me. Uh, hello, Rosie. It's great to uh, great to be on. I'm a fan of the pod and I'm a fan of you. So it's nice I, to be here. I, I'm a fan of you as well. So this <laughs> is going to be great. So we're going to start off with um, a very syllablack with this. I introduced Evan to... Um, what's your name where'd you come from tell us a bit about your story <laughs> well I grew up in Coventry um and I didn't really come to music until I was uh older really than most people I, I picked up the guitar when I was 14 um and played in bands uh and slowly started morphing my way towards classical music by uh, friends took me to my first classical concert when I was 16. Oh, wow. Okay. I didn't realize it was that late. I knew you came to guitar a little later, but I didn't realize it was that late. That's awesome. No, no. Music just wasn't part of my upbringing at all, really. Um, which, I mean, I used to have loads of hangups about that, but as you get older, you realize none of that stuff really life matters. Life is long. Life is both short, but life is also long. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, so I, I'd always enjoyed writing songs in bands and started composing. And then once I was at university... Uh, I just started to write, and that's that's what I've tried to do um, ever since. And yeah, the text thing has been, I've just, uh, the last couple of years, I've really started working almost always with with text in some way. And in this particular project that I'm looking forward to chatting to you about, um, it's all about Thomas Hardy. I've been, <laughs> I've been getting deeper and deeper into uh, to Thomas Hardy. Um, over the last couple of years, I mean, I, I was—I wanted to ask you actually: How is Thomas Hardy um, viewed in the states? Do you know? And is he taught in schools? I actually don't know, but Tess of the D'Urbervilles is one of my favourite books. Ah. 
So um, I love Tess of the Durbervilles. I remember studying it for GCSE uh, at school. For those of you who are American listeners, what is GCSE? GCSE is the General Certificate of Secondary Education. It's a round of um, big public exams that every kid has to take when they're about 16. And uh, one of the books that we did was Tom Hardy's Tess of the Durbervilles, which that has a subtitle and I can't remember what it is off the top of my head, but it's the idea of this beautiful, beautiful woman from lower caste in society, um, lower class in society. I should do that. I've been talking too much to Evan about Balinese things and castes and classes. A little bit of a word difference, but it's, I, I remember just studying the book about this beautiful woman who gets raped and the kind of, it, all of her things, just all of the things that happen in her life seem to be beyond her control and just sort of things happen to her that shouldn't happen to her, which is, I, I thought it was a beautiful, beautiful book. And Thomas Hardy was such a wonderful feminist for when it was written as well. So I'm excited to hear all about that. But before we get there, let's talk about the idea of music and text with you, because this isn't a new thing. You Even your non-text pieces have text related to them. For example, uh, your solo harp work, Haiku for Calumet Street, which um, I do love that it's written at the top of that music, written at the behest of Rosanna Moore. Uh, <laughs> this is why I pester composers, folks. Uh, it's It's been a long running thing. But this idea of text has always permeated your works and even the work that you wrote for Thomas Terese, uh, which had the idea of the call from the radio on there. There's still that idea of text embedded in. So I just wanted to explore some of those ideas with you to start off with. It's been a subconscious thing for a lot longer than it's been a conscious thing. Um, and you going through those pieces actually reminded me that, yeah, I've been working with text for ages. <laughs> This has been a thing for a long time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's there's one side of it that is, um, it's a handy structuring device, right? So you, you kind of straight away get given, well, it's some given circumstances. You're not making all the decisions straight away. Um, but also there's something really satisfying about finding the, the poetry within either a piece of poetry or a piece of prose um, and finding ways to map that into music and, and, and feeling that that connection. Sometimes um, I'll do this kind of just for me as a compositional device. I won't necessarily tell the audience that this is a piece based on text. Mm -hmm. um, it can be just generative like that. And other times I want to make it more explicit and and, and, and show the audience. Um, and there is something really wonderful in both responding to text in an abstract way. So in my recent string quartet, there's five movements, each of which responds to a line from a Thomas Hardy poem, um, but they're not explicitly uh, set. Um, and finding a way to kind of manifest in music something that, that the poem is trying to evoke. And interspersed within those five movements are four interludes, which are sung, and they set a Larkin poem, which responds to the Hardy poem um, that I was, uh, that the string quartet itself is replying to. So. There's lots of ways of enmeshing text within musical structures, within musical fabric, um, and also with directly setting the text for a singer, which is uh, something I love to do as well. As a composer, how do you decide who to write for? Do you write for people who just annoying people like me who come and say, hey, write me things? Or does this come from grants? Does it come from cold commissions? Can you talk about the process of specifically this one with the Ligeti String Quartet came about, but also any of the other pieces and groups that you work well, with? Well, this Ligeti piece, it's a great example to talk about because it's my absolute favourite way of, of, of working. Um, you know, of course, you'll take a commission wherever it's coming from. You know, I'm not... Um, I'm not picky. <laughs> I want to write for people who want to hear my music and play my music. And we also want to pay our rent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You have to, um, you know, you have to do the stuff. But in the case of the, the Ligeti Quartet, I met them whilst I was on a week-long residency at the Chapman Festival. Mm -hmm. And I was writing for someone else, not for the Ligetes, but some of the other composers on this scheme were writing for the Ligeti Quartet. So we chatted, we met over beers in the pub. We had a long conversation about service stations on motorways. That seemed <laughs> that seemed to cement our friendship. That's always um, and I know we, we did just kind of get on as, as humans. And I really enjoy the way that they work on music. So watching them in, in a workshop setting was amazing. They're so comfortable with each other and they're so communicative about how they're trying to tease out 
music from from the page and that I just really enjoyed all all of that process side of things so you know it it was mooted straight away this is in 2017 it was mooted that at some point I would like to write for them they would like me to write for them but how do you how do you get that to to progress how how do you fund your existence because again it's great to just create art but we do all still have bills to pay. Yeah, and, and the Ligeties have got a good, you know, they're a very busy quartet and they have a good rule of thumb, which is unless there's at least two, probably three reasons to do a project, it's not it's not going to be top of their list. So there's a lot of things to set oh, up. Oh, I like that. I, th- I think that's a good way of, good way of doing it. Sort of, uh, it's a good way of structuring all the ideas that musicians have of things they want to do. Oh, I might steal that. Thank you, Ligeti <laughs> Quartet. It's, it's an interesting, I mean, they've been around for, 10 years and they've commissioned so much music in that time that they're, they're really interesting to talk to about how how they go along that process um but in the meantime i was occasionally sound engineering for them mm-hmm. and whenever i turn up to do a sound engineering gig i'd have written eight bars of something for them and i'd, I'd insist them on playing it and say that's that's where they get their sound engineering discount from ah um, <laughs> <laughs> so you you have a string quartet on call i love this <laughs> exactly. So I know over, over the years we worked together in that way, and I'd always just rob a bit of their time to play through tiny little bits and bobs. A- anyway, this exact um, commission came about through a festival I was tangentially involved with. Its delay for COVID meant they had a gap in the schedule. I could fill it because ah, I pesky pandemic. <laughs> it's one of those things where actually, I mean, the pandemic was really good for me for this. I'd 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 yeah. won an award that was adjusted for COVID. Um, that was the money that I used to to, to write the piece um, in lieu of all mm-hmm. the other work that had gone. The festival was emerging at the right time. I had this Hardy project that didn't involve string quartet at the time um, ongoing, and I could just naturally fit it in. So the answer to your question is it's super organic with this one. It's not um, a kind of very carefully planned out project from start to finish. It's mm-hmm. a bunch of musicians who I absolutely had to work with and hopefully they felt like they wanted to work with me too yeah and over the course of what seven no six years uh we've got to the point where they premiered the piece last may and then played it again in two other places and we will be recording it next uh, at the end of next year and then touring it in 2024 that's amazing this is a long process. <laughs> exactly. But I think, I mean, I, I'm always impatient. I think most musicians and composers are. Yeah. But you can't rush some of these things. It just, to find the right project at the right time with the right people, I think sometimes just does take a bit of time. So I suppose what it's taught me is to meet more musicians, be really nice to them. <laughs> work, buy them beers. Yeah, buy beers, work well, talk about service stations, be charming and fun. Um, and, you know, eventually, hopefully your network emerges with some work. I, I think that's actually a really important thing, which I'm going to probe you more about um, as well. Just especially in this day and age when we have all the social media and people going, look how fancy I am and doing all the things, which I know I am definitely someone who is um, guilty of that. I think a lot of musicians are, but it's the fact that you don't want you do want to be cultivating these relationships this is where this beautiful art comes from is when you cultivate these relationships i i have a similar project which has been um been in the works for a number of years so i i'm getting to do the us premiere of a cello and harp concerto uh in a few months Amazing. and this is something that came up in 2020 and it, it kind of came up as a joke of sort of ah oh, the, the cellist i'm working with said ah well if you find an orchestra then i'll learn it i was like hold my beer that's <laughs> <laughs> did a friend of mine and he said yeah how about the 2022-23 season and i was just like perfect that that works really really well and these things rarely happen at the drop of the hat they do still happen at the drop of the hat so if someone asks you to go and sub with an orchestra or write a piece last minute or put a piece in a festival that's all really great and it opens doors and that's sometimes how you get your name out there but really creating the art with people that you want to work with takes time and that's okay and I don't 
know if we necessarily teach students in school that I mean there's a lot about the business of music this is kind of why this podcast exists there's a lot of the business of music that I don't think we learn at university at conservatoire I I think you you'd agree with me for that and I'd love to ask for your opinion because you have a slightly different background from me I did the conservatory route you did the university route and obviously I was in the U.S. for my grad school um but I, is it the same thing that we don't talk about my favorite thing? We don't talk about doing our taxes. We don't talk about how to actually find commissions or grants. We don't talk about musician etiquette and actually working with different groups, et cetera. cetera. No, I think, and I, and I certainly hope, I think that is changing. I hope so too. It's uh, Eastman is certainly great for that with the arts leadership program. And there are many places in the U S that are starting to do that, but is that starting to happen in the UK as well? Cause again, that's one of the reasons I left in the first place is I wanted that little bit of business acumen to actually be able to be a grown-up. Well, I'm not, I'm not the best person to, to to ask. I don't know across the UK. Um, yeah. There is a focus on collaborative practice and elements of business at Middlesex, but that's a very different type of university than, for example, the conservatoires. I'm sure, given the culture and the gig economy the understanding of the gig economy a bit more i'm sure that is changing but i i I don't know for sure certainly when i was at university there was absolutely none of that and the other thing that i'm interested in the difference between university and conservatoire i i went to eastman for three and a half months specifically (laughs) because i wanted the conservatoire experience and you know eastman is like a conservatoire on steroids it's it's absolutely (laughs) it's absolutely enormous that's true (laughs) It's a big up to the Eastman School of Music. Please sponsor this podcast. <laughs> I mean, it's absolutely enormous. There are hundreds, nay, thousands of performers. And I couldn't believe my luck that on the first two days, I think I met you and Tom, and both of you within the first three hours had said, oh, you should definitely write something for me. <laughs> Now I came, and this and this is why, and this is why you now write for harp, and you now write. Actually, no, you always wrote for guitar, but it's definitely why you write for harp. <laughs> well, actually, that was the first piece for guitar I ever wrote. Oh, really? Um, I was always I was scared of guitar oh. before that. I mean, I played guitar, but it was pop guitar. I didn't really ever get my fingers around. I mean, I was just a terrible player. So never, never. <laughs> never. Um, but the thing that was, I mean, that, that I kind of hoped that would be the case when I went to conservatoire. One of the things that I'd I found difficult about university was there was a fantastic composition department mm-hmm. and, and it, w- it was so good for teaching the craft of composition. Um, there was a brilliant musicology department. There wasn't much in the way of performance because yeah. the hardcore performance students really do ch- choose conservatoire. So, certainly in the UK, yeah, there is, there is very much a difference. I was actually discussing this with a colleague earlier today. In the US, I teach at a university, but it's a university with a very big music department, music performance department. And a lot of those kids go on to be performers. They don't go on to be academics. Whereas I do find that, um, and I don't know if you agree or not, but people who play a performing instrument, like flute, violin, whatever, if they go to university, they often want that academic background, unless they're already a fantastic performer and they keep their performance chops up. And again, the degree is one year shorter for a university degree in music versus a um, conservatoire uh, undergraduate in music that then go on to Royal Academy or Royal College or they go further afield. It's it's very much they go because they want the academic side of it without the stress of the performance side, which is is really interesting to kind of weigh out because it's not the same in the US. You have your Juilliards and your Eastmans and your Curtises, but then you might decide to go to um, oh, I'm trying to think of an example other than my work, um, Carnegie Mellon University, which the harp teacher there is principal with the Pittsburgh Symphony. So you're still getting a fantastic performance degree, but it's just not coming from a um, conservatory. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure that I'm sure that is the case. I mean, the the people who are really good performers that at the university and again my, my information is a little bit out of date here <laughs> we're old when they, did they that get, happen <laughs> <laughs> yeah they get um they get great experience of orchestral playing the orchestras uh, are good and the kind of institution-led ensembles are good but the culture of certainly new music and chamber music that is all self-driven yeah that is a lot harder to to find i think in universities partly because the amount of effort that takes, which is fabulous training, because it does take effort in the real world, um, is seen as a distraction and a, a kind of niche interest that 
isn't the core focus of study. So there's a bunch of composers going, I want to write for you guys. You play great and I want you to get you together. And, and, it, and it's tough to, to, to get people to take on new music in that environment. So, I, I mean, one of the things that, um, I'm, I'm sure the grass is always greener, but had I been at conservatoire, I might have known Ligeti when I was 17, eight, well, 18. Yeah. And, you, you know, those those networks are, are fairly broad and, and those players go on to be professionals and you you know them from an early age. But like I say, there, there's... And that's not sour grapes. I don't know. I don't know. No, I and it's. I think this is something that I'm realizing when, as I get older as well. It's just, and I say this to my students all the time. There is more than enough room for everyone in this career, but you are going to come into yourself at a different time from someone else. You might have friends, especially when you're an undergrad, who are going and winning all the competitions and things like that. I didn't really do I did a little bit of that in my in my fourth year of college going oh no I really am okay at this but I didn't really start hitting my stride until six years after my undergrad and I think that's um that was actually something my my former teacher Ada said to me she said six years after you finish you will start to hit your stride and it was pretty much six years on the on the dot I got my first two major teaching gigs I did super well in a competition I won my first two orchestral jobs and it was just one of those, oh, it didn't happen when I was 22, but also I was a baby at 22. And I don't think we think about that because, we again, we're surrounded by the social media of everyone doing so well. But it's also just putting putting out all the things that they think people want to see. And I think it's, sorry, we're turn, this is turning into like psychology hour. <laughs> no, I think this is good. I mean, it's something that I've forced myself to be more okay about talking about because I am I am a little bit older than I should be at my stage of career perhaps but that should is um predicated on a whole host of things from economic background and how how often you have to work and how how you pay back your university debts whether that allows you to compose you know and everyone takes their their, their course through and I, I mentioned earlier i'm in, i'm impatient it's the <laughs> it's been the biggest curve over the last four or five years where i've really committed to i i am you know, I'm a composer. That's what I'm going to be doing as, as the core part of my day to day. So I have to be patient and understand how that maps out over 10 years, 15 years. And yes, Johnny Newcomer, fantastic composer, is winning this amazing commission, but I've still got my plan and my way of navigating this this business. And that that's a real um, help to the mental health <laughs> when you can... Yeah. Yeah, I think that's important because humans were impatient anyway. But I think that's also important to talk about. That leads me into a question that I wasn't going to ask, but you talk about socioeconomic backgrounds. And it's like I've seen this as a difference between my colleagues. Um, So when I was in grad school, I worked myself to death, basically, because I was having to I, I was very fortunate that I had a full ride at Eastman, but I was also having to pay for my rent. I was having to pay for my health insurance. And I my parents weren't in a place where they could really support me, which is fine. They'd supported me earlier on and I was doing a doctorate. I was grown up, technically. But it meant that when I was practicing, it was like very focused practice. And I didn't have the hours and hours to lounge around as someone who perhaps is in a different position. And I think the same thing happens when we graduate is that sometimes you do have to take a different job, whether that is music related or not. Maybe you go and work in a coffee shop. Maybe you, uh, I don't know, do real estate. But it's I think we're starting to talk about it with regards to equity and inclusion, but it is something that it does put people at a disadvantage because they don't have the hours a day to just sit at their instrument or sit and compose. And so I just kind of wondered what your story was with that and how you sort of made the time, other things that you may have had to do to support yourself um, throughout your career and just all of those general things. I I find this stuff, Hard to talk about, but I, I've made a, a real commitment in the last year or two to to, to talk about it more. So this is a good test um, of that. Um, yeah, I, I, like money is an issue. So I, I didn't get funding for my master's. Mm-hmm. And that's partly because I got a two one degree, not a first. And in the UK, I you kind of really as well. Yeah, <laughs> it's um, stupid. It's it, it's. <laughs> I don't like the way that. Um, 
we're graded in the UK personally. I, I think if you get 70%, that is a fail mark, not a the thing you're aiming for. I, I don't understand the numbering system. Anyway, sorry, <laughs> that's that's by the by. That's a question for another time. But but not not having um funding for an MA meant I took a a bold decision that my family were dead against, which was to take out a private bank loan to do a master's Ooh, okay. part-time over two years. Yeah. So I worked alongside and I had this this loan that I didn't have to pay back until the month after I grad- I finished the course. So one month after finishing a two-year course as uh, a now unemployed, what was I, 25, 26-year-old, uh, I then had to pay back 250 a month for the next, it would have been seven years, I think. Um. And that, that was tough. So I got a job. The first job I could get oh, after, yeah. after temping was an estate agent. And I worked as an estate agent um, for, for a year. And I was trying to find a way to do a PhD, but I really didn't know how that how that could happen. Luckily for me, I, I mean, it's, it's an amazing bit of support. The, the lecturers at Bristol University had been trying to source funding for me. And so they... They they found um, alumni who were willing to put in money over over three years mm, that yeah. would allow me to take the course. That paid for fees and it paid a small um, living allowance, which was enough to live on, but not enough to pay back my MA loan. So you still had to keep working on top of that to pay back the loan. I, I, firstly, I thank you for sharing that because I don't think we talk about this enough um, in general. In the US, you can get loans the whole way through, but the general thing is, thank you, Obama. He introduced a thing where you, similar to the UK for uh, student loans, you can be on income-based repayments. And if you can't afford to pay it back, you don't pay it back. And it's um, wiped clean, but put on your tax return or something after 25 years. However, in the UK, we have a, you don't start paying it back until you're earning over a certain amount per year, but then they don't have the option to fund you for grad school, which is really difficult. And again, it means that people are cut off from being able to continue their studies if they want to. And we don't talk about it enough. The, it's it's a huge barrier. I think that might have changed in the last couple of years. I think you can now get a student loan for MA, not not for postgrad. Oh, is that new? Ooh, I, that's I, new. I, okay. I think so. It's only been the last couple of years, I think. Um, and I think they're not guaranteed in the way that a student loan, if you've got a place, is okay. automatic. Yeah. But that, that yeah. that's the big difference. And, you know, my family um, are hugely supportive in principle, but they're not... Yeah at all from a music background they're not into arts and culture it it it's it's tough both i mean financially they can't offer sports um but even in terms of understanding what i'm trying to do and why i'm trying to do it it's insanity to them <laughs> um, especially at that you know at that point I, i'm getting to the point where i might be proving them wrong but um <laughs> but it's it's difficult and you know culturally it's it's it becomes tough. So there's, you know, th- those kind of barriers are absolutely surmountable. But yeah, the fact there's no understanding of the trade that you're going into and no links into it in, in, in that way. I mean, there's also a geographic thing. that There's people I know who grew up in London. That means they've got a place in London where they can be at the heart of all the classical music making. Same in, you know, big cities like Manchester and Leeds. They've got good classical music. I grew up in Coventry. There just isn't, there isn't a concert hall in Coventry. There isn't an ensemble. Birmingham's not far away, but when you're growing up there, it... yeah, it's not far away. But then you've, especially in the UK, you've got the kind of barriers of, oh, you're from Coventry, oh, you're from Birmingham. Yeah, it's yeah, and, and it's not. You didn't when you when I was a kid, it was expensive to go to Birmingham. You just it, it didn't didn't happen. Yeah, and, and you know, no one went to concerts. So yeah, anyway, those things play a part. But that's what might take take things a bit longer, and so you eventually find your way to get the funding to do the thing to take the decisions yeah. you know I've had a couple of years where I've had to work full-time when I finished my PhD I had to work two years full-time um to finish off those loans uh, and, and kind of get back on my feet but then and this is where the pandemic ended up at a decent time for me I was able for the first time to go part-time during uh, the pandemic and that's when I could go actually okay. I, I can get rid of some of these side hustles and I can teach three days a week and the rest of the time I can now start putting into my career. And that's when things like this Hardy project and some, some funding streams came on. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I haven't been back in overalls since, you know, I kind of measure. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. That's amazing. I, mean, I measure my career by how long it's been since I last did a painting and decorating job. And I'm up to 15 <laughs> months. So I'm, I'm really pleased with that. 
That's awesome. So you mentioned teaching in university. And I actually, this might be of interest uh, to our listeners, because it is very different looking at the UK structure versus the US structure. Um, So we know that university professors are chronically underpaid in the UK, and seemingly most musical stances are what we would call adjunct or part-time. It's per service rather than getting a salary. So I wanted to know a little bit about how much of your career you dedicate to teaching and also how much that um it's sort of whether you're actually paid equitably for your time compared to um full-time lecturers or professors uh who were salaried yeah well the the um fixed term contracts uh which i did for years are very difficult uh then it's not the the pay rate the pay rate is fine it's the number of hours that are allocated to tasks which yeah. you know you just know there's no chance of getting that that work done in that time yeah um it's kind of the way it's been, I think, for the last 20 or so years. People do still look mm-hmm. back to a time before this. Some of the uh, lecturers who've been around for longer do talk very openly about it wasn't like this when I started. That's good. We don't talk about that in the US. It's the opposite. They go, well, I had to do this, so why can't you? I'm like, yes, but buying a house cost 50 grand rather than 500 grand. <laughs> no, I mean, the, the, job, the job itself has, has changed in some ways for the better. Uh, and in in some ways, from an academic point of view, for the worse. Um, and so you do hear people talk about uh, basically pre tuition fees. The culture mm-hmm. around teaching in university being very very different. Um, yeah. Now I'm in a fortunate position that I did those fixed term contracts for ages. Um, but in 2020, I managed to get a full time permanent part time job. Oh, that's good. So okay, I'm, that's good. I'm a permanent member of staff at Middlesex now. Um, good, yay! Which which changes it enormously. Um, you know, workloads are are difficult across the sector, but it's not like doing the fixed term contracts. So no, I no. teach half the week. I teach between two and a half days and three days a, a week, depending on you know what what <laughs> what the contract is that much. What they need. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the, you know the. The contract itself is for less, but it, it always gets topped up by, by various yeah. amounts. So okay, that's good. That's good to hear that. That's but and I are those are those jobs plentiful, or is that just you were there long enough and they went? Hang on, you're you're important that we need to keep you because we're no, going. They are not plentiful. They're not anywhere. They're rare as hen's teeth. I'm I'm so lucky and and and, and yeah. pleased to have it. I mean, one of the benefits. It's always a compromise. You, you want to be writing all the time, but of course, yeah. practically that's difficult. And the, some of the benefits of being within the university environment are great. I'm not painting and decorating. I'm in a musical yes. environment. You know, yes. you work and you're talking about music, you're working with ensembles. I conduct the instrumental ensemble at Middlesex. Uh, I don't and- know you conducted. No, you I've started to. I love this. You're a, <laughs> you're a fellow wand waver. One of, a, one of my guests I interviewed last week is cellist runs uh runs a chamber music uh it's principal cellist with louisville orchestra um runs his own chamber festival and also waves his arms around <laughs> so i'm like okay. fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah no it's it's really fun i mean I, i'd like to do more of it but it, that's a slow burn yeah that that's definitely a thing you either get into it super young or it takes a while and mm. it's uh, that's kind of that's that's a question for another day well we'll have a conducting <laughs> chat some other time <laughs> uh, but that's amazing so they they also have you conducting the ensembles which which is great so they're they're filling out your work with musical things that are beneficial to you and uh, sort of fueling your soul yeah exactly and, it, and it, you know it's a musical environment there's uh there's no shame in painting and decorating or doing cafe work but it's not musical so just being in that environment and having 
you know, performers come through and colleagues and and the students. That that is that is a good thing, and it means that I can relax about the mortgage and the rest of everything else can yeah. be from you know I've got to find the work and that and that's great. It's kind of the best of both. Worlds. Yeah, and I think part of it is saying that there is no shame if you are doing something that's non musical because I think a lot of people are like, but my art. It's like that's great. But you also need to live. And it's sometimes it does have to not take a back seat, but you need to prioritize how how you do things. And when I'm when I'm when I'm stressed about money, I, I can't write. You know, yeah. there's nothing that, that plays on your mind more than when you feel like you can't afford next month's meal. Oh, yeah. No, I can't practice. It means I just I throw Wagner at the wall and go, why am I taking this orchestral audition? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And actually, it makes you more OK. So I'm. I'm okay with the time spent developing projects that are unpaid yeah. because I know that it's not at the cost of not paying my mortgage. Yeah. You yeah. Know, it's kind of, <laughs> you've got that um, just psychological space to go, I oh, know this is, I'm investing in me and this project and I'm looking forward to it. I can do this. I don't have to feel guilty about not finding another temp job. That's amazing. And again, I think musicians need to talk about this more because if you are in a fortunate position that you don't have to take on uh, temp work or do something non-musical, that's great. Or even getting a music admin job, which I, that's that's a challenge in and of itself. And it's a wonderful, wonderful thing to do. And it often pays pretty well as well. But it's there's no shame in it. You're still going to be able to make your art. It's just you have to work with your schedule a little bit. like to talk to you about the Hardy Project. Most importantly, that um, you also, in addition to working with the Ligeties and all of this, you have a podcast and there's a walking tour. And I just want to know all of the things <laughs> because I want to listen to your podcast. And uh, it's uh, lovely folks. We will put everything down in the show notes as always. Um, but yeah, t- tell me more about the extra things that are coming into this project. Well, it's so great to finally be at the stage where we're starting to put some of this stuff in front of an audience. Lottie Betstein, who's the mezzo-soprano mm-hmm. I've been working with, um, we started working on this in 2018. Uh, and it's been a real labour of love from, from that point. And we've finally got to the point where at the end of uh, this year, this is going out in 2023, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so five years. Five years in the making. <laughs> at the end of this year, we'll be able to put it in front of audiences and have a discount and, and all this stuff. So there will be a podcast there will be a recording and there will be a tour. I suppose I'll start from, from that side. We've been developing three strands of material all related to Thomas Hardy and wonderfully Delphian Records, who I'm delighted to, to work with. They were our, our, my first choice by a mile. Um, they're going to record it next November and mm-hmm. put it out in 2024. And over the course of this year, we've still got a little bit more fundraising to, to do. And so as part of a Kickstarter, we're setting up pre-sales of the album and a few other oh, bits nice. and bobs. And there's a collaboration with an artist that I'm quite excited about who's going to make um, a print that is available, you know, and, and all sorts of other goodies around that uh, kind of Kickstarter stuff. And um, there's also going to be a podcast related to that that charts the process from 2018 to, to, to now. Um, and that's going to run through 2023 and be part of this Kickstarter. And then in 2024, we'll release the album. And excitingly, we're going to do a walking tour. So in 1927, Holst, Gustav Holst, walked from Bristol all the way down to Dorchester. It's about 160 miles. Mm -hmm. And so over the course of four or five days, he walked down to uh, Dorchester to go and visit Thomas Hardy. He was writing his orchestral piece, uh, Egdon Heath, and he knew it was an homage to Hardy and he wanted to go and see Hardy. So... He walked down there, had lunch with the Hardys. They took him out in a car journey all over Egdon Heath. And this is just a year before Hardy died. He died in 1928. Oh, wow. Sadly, 
just before the premiere. So I think he died about four months before the premiere of Egdon Heath. That's really interesting. This, to me, this is kind of giving me vibes of Debussy and Malamé because they met just, that's why Debussy wrote uh, L'Après-Midi. Um, ah. And I I think they met for coffee and Malamé, because uh, Malamé was much older than Debussy at the time. And he died bef- uh, before Four Naturally came out. It's, I'm going to have to double check that, but it's it's giving me like similar, similar vibes of just... Um, a composer who was really, um, uh, really interested in a particular author. So I think that's awesome that there's a there's another one of those that's British. Well, yeah, I mean, Holst, Holst had been fascinated with Hardy's poetry for ages. Mm-hmm. He first, he was one of the very first to set um, some of Hardy's poems. So oh, really? Okay. We're not quite sure when he wrote them, but in 1903, he sent three short songs to Thomas Hardy. Um, oh. Who sent a lovely note back saying, "Yeah, this is this is great. You should publish." And only one ever was ever published. Um, there's been another one that's in some facsimiles that's come out recently, yeah. and one yeah. is and another one is lost. Um, It'll so, turn up at some point, hopefully. Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> so yeah, there's there's a couple of others that they came to be in the very first, but you know, Holst is right on the button with um, in the very early 20th century setting uh, Hardy's music. So. We're going to follow the route that Holst took from Bristol, which is where I live. We're going to stage a concert in Bristol and follow the route down, staging concerts all along the way, um, and end at Max Gate, which is Thomas Hardy's house, which he designed and was built by his dad. And we're going to do a concert there as part of the Thomas Hardy Society's uh, conference that year, mm-hmm. um, which is super exciting. And that will all kind of support this, this release. So the Hardy obsession kind of started... Well, the Hardy obsession started actually with my obsession with uh, this singer. So again, I met Lottie Betstein when I was um, called in to do some sound engineering at short notice. She had a gig in this amazing St. Bart's Pathology Museum, which Mm -hmm. was this really creepy place with loads of body parts and jars. (laughs) And she was doing this amazing... Yeah, what's your weirdest gig? I think think you've just answered that one. Oh, it was it was really weird, and it, it was amazing. She built this program around this being a creepy thing. So it was around Halloween. Nice. It was called Death Speaks, and it it, it um, used the David Lang piece that takes all of the references to death in Schubert's Winterreise. I think. Oh, I might be oh, that's cool. And takes them out, and then casts some Kafka fragments, and Brett yeah. Dean wrote um, uh, some other pieces. So the, yeah, I know it yeah. was this. It was this amazing program, and so I heard her sing this, and I'd worked with her in the day in rehearsal. And it's the only time, I don't know, I'm normally not brave enough to do this. It's the only time after a gig, I've gone up to a performer and said, I absolutely have to write something for you. And I, and I will, if that's okay. Um, so, I mean, she was like, yeah, fine, whatever, sound engineer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah sure we'll see if it happens i think that's the thing that a lot of things it's like yeah sure you're gonna write me a thing i'll wait till i see the door <laughs> <laughs> exactly but luckily uh i was able to approach a concert series in bristol and basically just just booked a date and said would you do it with with this guitarist that she was working with at the time oh, um, great. and so then we had we had an ensemble there. I mean, we, I knew that she had a, a big recital with this with, with this guitarist, mm-hmm. so we could slot something in there. Um, and my first experience of Thomas Hardy was reading um, Far From the Madding Crowd at school, and I absolutely hated it. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> I was so, I mean, I was just too young, and I wasn't, I wasn't a great student anyway, but I, I found it unbelievably boring. Mm-hmm. And so I hadn't touched Hardy since then and I, at this point I was just slowly starting to get into poetry and to understand poetry and I'd always thought well that's not really for me but I use it as a work and you know yeah, I just yeah. it, it kind of crept up on me and, and a friend um who loved Finzi especially uh and, and all those amazing Hardy Hardy settings which which he'd got me into before he, he just gave me the collected poems of Thomas Hardy oh, and said if you're writing for Lottie just there you go you've got a, a lovely resource there I suggest that and I happened upon this set of poems that are written about Thomas Hardy's first wife, Emma. And they're, they're called The Poems of 1912 to 1913. And they are written in a flurry after she died. She died in 1912. And it's an unbelievable outpouring of uh, grief, kind of nostalgic love, some, mm-hmm. some bitterness and sadness at himself because... Even by Victorian standards, Hardy was not a good husband. Um, he was 
in many ways he was dreadful for such a um kind of visionary around social rights and women's rights yeah he yeah. did not put this into practice particularly well on a, on a human human level like he's quite a hip- on a human level but he wrote about it so that's he's, he's quite a hippie when you read Jude the School, he's got yeah. quite this this idea of free love and he was taken up by um many people and he was pro divorce reform and all this all this amazing mm-hmm. stuff around individual rights and, and and women's rights but anyway he, he he didn't treat Emma very well for the last 10 years of their marriage they basically lived separate lives she they had an amazing courtship and Hardy's kind of uh he's a bit immature with love he can't help falling in love all the time but it's the courtship and it's the it's the falling in love bit the actual practicalities it's the chase and the yeah the practicalities yeah. of having a relationship ongoing where you talk about what's for dinner that he he couldn't he couldn't deal with and this comes across i think he he's very abashed i think when she dies and anyway this collection of poems which is they're beautiful elegies um is his way i mean he he's got he's got an amazing quote he he said about them some of them i rather shrink from printing but i will as they are the only amends that i can make and oh my gosh that's beautiful it is yeah I, I love that. That's gorgeous. But he's, it, in some ways, he's frustrating because, I mean, I've been doing such a deep dive and I've read so many biographies of him now. He's willing to do this, but wait, just too late. He's too, it's too late. He's treated Emma badly for so long. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, in some ways it ends up feeling a little bit like it's about him and his catharsis. So the point is they're really complex poems. And that's what I started to really enjoy. On the first reading, they are beautiful love poems elegizing a, a wonderful woman who he, he talks of so highly but then you realize oh they're the ones where he's talking about when they met when they were young when she was wearing her air blue gown and that comes up all the time and then talks about so why did you change and there's these elements of kind of anger anyway all this started me making a piece of music which can which can reflect these these capricious elements and this, yeah. this this multiple yeah. layered thing going on so the first song that i wrote for lottie for guitar um was called the walk uh thomas harley's poem the walk um and it and it really tries to do this multi-sided thing where sometimes he's thinking super romantically genuinely and then on the twist of a word he can become quite kind of bitter or, or kind of sad or upset um anyway it, it went really well and we really liked playing it and uh, from that point, um, I started suggesting to Lottie that I could build this into a cycle because there's about 25 poems in this collection and certainly six or seven are amazing and a natural cycle might have five. <laughs> so yeah, um, yeah. over time, this idea kind of coagulated and and we just, every time that I could, I'd write another one. And so she premiered them individually at first. So she's done three so far. Um, and that's when we realised this is... A, a bigger project so let's build a recital yes so then the other yeah. side of things is that i've uh, arranged for guitar a whole host of piano songs that that set oh, thomas hardy okay so we've got some of the big hitters like finzi and britain that everyone knows and loves um but to hear them on guitar is a kind of different world this kind of intimate world that kind of harks back to the renaissance this kind of string any chance you want to rewrite those for harp because i want to play those please that sounds great definitely there's a there's a whole cycle in this because i think it's derek holman a canadian composer Okay. He's he's written some amazing Hardy settings for Harp. Yeah. Oh, um, okay. Which could build around, uh, which could build around this. But so yes, I do very much so. <laughs> um, and so, I, but I then did a, a deep dive on who who has set Hardy and trying to get a broad range of voices and some unusual pieces that might not have seen much light. So we've mm-hmm. I I found unpublished songs by Ivor Gurney, by Imogen Holst, oh. uh, and by. Wow. Um, Robin Milford, who are kind of composers who in some ways are marginalised, in some ways on the fringe, yeah. uh, but they're amazing song writers and, and, and these pieces, which never saw publication, they have started to see, well, not the Ivagoni, but the others had started to see a few performances here and there. But we've taken those and we've arranged those. There's a, an Australian composer called Ethel Florence Richardson. Mm-hmm. She's actually called Henry Handel Richardson. She used a, a male subriquet because Which she was. A she should big... never have had to do, but yeah, that's that's still a thing. That's still a exactly. Thing. So we're we're trying to 
uh, I need to speak to the society about this. We're trying to kind of claim her name back a little bit. Yeah. But she's an amazing author. She wrote um, a very kind of famous book called Maurice Guest uh, and a few other uh, things, a big um, Australian novelist. But she also wrote songs. So we've got one of hers in there and, you know, a, a few other things that we unearthed. And this set spans 100 years. So we've got from oh 1923 through to the new music in 2023. We also commissioned, I mean, th this was one of the, my favourite parts of the project, is that we were able to commission another composer, Carrie Andrew, um, to write one song. And she's written this amazing atmospheric piece that's to a poem that has never been set before. Oh, wow. Okay. We can't find any trace. So she's the first to approach this particular um Hardy Bone. So uh, the whole idea is that this collection spans 100 years from 1923 to 2023. We're recontextualizing these piano arrangements into intimate guitar song. Yeah. Um, and then we've got the new material of a, a song cycle that focuses on his relationship with his first wife. Yes. Um, and then Kerry's new, Kerry's new piece. The way that the string quartet then kind of ties into this is that it's a sister piece to the song cycle. So oh, the song okay. cycle is called Elegies for Emma. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I've very much taken the, the point that it's about Emma uh, kind of as much or more than it is about Thomas. I, I kind of yeah, want yeah. Her, her voice to be heard. Um, the string quartet is called Elegies for Tom. Oh, gosh, that's awesome. So it's a, it's literally both sides of the same coin of... of I Actually, there's another piece that does this, The Crown of Ariadne. Uh, by oh. Almari Schaefer for harp and ah. fashion setup. But yeah, the, I love that you're uh, sort of showing things from two different people's point of view because I think that's, it's rarely done as a as a programming tactic mm. in music. And I think that it works incredibly well. I think it's a nice, it, it, uh, bringing in an element of narrative to a recital can only be a good thing, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's nice to follow that plot through. I mean, we are talking about developing this into a recital with some text and poetry readings in between to kind of flesh out the story in a more in a more specific way. So you know we think we think that side of it has got has got legs. Yeah. Um, the, the the quartet, the elegies for Tom, takes um, a later poem by Hardy that's kind of self um, like a memento mori to himself. It's kind of a eulogy for himself. Uh, it's called okay. It's called afterwards. Okay. And it's all about will my actions make me be seen as a kind and caring person to nature and and when once and the th the things that people think about as they're getting towards death a lot of the exactly. time that that's beautiful that so he's thinking about his death after sort of something following the death of a loved one that's that's a really beautiful through line to make for a program there's there's a fun thing here that um i think thomas hardy gets a bit of a bad rap for being depressive uh, for being obsessed <laughs> obsessed with death. But I don't think he is. I think he's an optimist. I think this poetry is about, um, yes, we die, but look how amazing life is yeah. during during the time. So I, I really want to focus on, a lot of the arrangements that I've made of, of these songs focus on seasons and mm -hmm. nature and, and time and seasons is kind of a working title for this project where I want to show off that Hardy is looking at the beauty of nature and the beauty of, of life, albeit through the lens of death, but <laughs> he's, he's being optimistic. The the the, um, the Thomas Hardy poem afterwards is this beautiful memento mori where he talks about hedgehogs crossing the lawn and all this oh beautiful, goodness. beautiful imagery. Yeah. But um, Philip Larkin, who was a massive fan of Hardy and actually did a lot to, to promote his work mm -hmm. um, when he was editing collections in, in, in the 70s, he wrote his own poem called The Mower, which typically uh, Larkin-esque is a very gruesome uh, version of this, but it's it's a riff on Thomas Hardy. So he talks about the hedgehog crossing the lawn. And in this case, in the Larkin case, the hedgehog gets splattered by a mower. Oh, of course. But, <laughs> <laughs> but he, uh, he sets it, it's a beautiful poem. It's an amazing poem. And it's directly riffing on this Hardy poem afterwards. And it, it's that setting that becomes the interludes between the movements of the string quartet, yeah. which is sung then by, by Lottie. So this, there's this connection between poetry that spans well, 1912 through to when Larkin uh, wrote afterwards, which I can't bring to mind, but I think it was in the early 70s. 
No, I I think that's this is such a beautiful project and lovely and wonderful listeners. It's when all of this stuff comes out, we will be sharing it on our social medias. Amazing. This could have been a two-parter for me. So. I'm glad you like it. I no, this is great. This is really wonderful. So I'm going to jump to hi, it's the end of the interview. We could have talked about this all day. We could have talked about what grants you got and Arts Council England all and all sorts of things. So we're probably going to have to have you back on at some point. Um please but do. we always finish with a question roulette, which is can you please pick a uh question uh pick a number, one, two, or three. Oh, three, please. If you could give advice to 17-year-old you, what would it be? Chill out. <laughs> yes, good. Awesome. I think that's, um, that. I mean, genuinely, that's the thing that, uh, and I've, I've touched on this already, but over the last couple of years, trying to rein in impatience, trying to accept ambition, but in a more kind of, holistic way those you will you will still write music there will be someone to write music for it's not the end of the world if that commission didn't come in that day next week you'll find a place to write some more music you know it's such a it's such an amazing privilege to write music as part or all of what you do that's an extraordinary privilege and okay you want you want it to be now and you want it to be bigger and better but you'll still do it there'll still be a project tomorrow that I can get up and write some dots on the page for. And that is, I'm grateful enough for that. So yeah, if I, a 17 year old needs to just understand that a little bit more, just chill your beans. <laughs> chill your beans. That's, that is the, that's the theme for the podcast. And also um, I'm waiting for my test of the D'Urbervilles harp sonata. Uh, that's, that's going to have to be a thing we do at some point. By the way, the, uh, the subtitle of that book is a pure woman. Thank you. That's what it was. So <laughs> I just finished perfect. rereading it. I've gone through all the novels again. It's so good. It's so good. good. Um, Yeah, we're going to have to do that. We're going to talk after this. So this is the end of this brilliant, wonderful Tour de Force interview with the brilliant composer, Arthur Keegan. Uh, There is going to be a Kickstarter, which is going to start around the time that this comes out. So please do go. And if you have a little bit of funding to throw Arthur's way to get this project really off the ground and get this record done, we really appreciate it. Or please like, share, subscribe, all of those things. If you are going to be in the UK around this time, we recommend this walking tour and listening to Arthur's podcast and just check out his music. It's really beautiful and we're so grateful for having you on today. So thank you for just being a brilliant guest to throw things backwards and forwards between. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Soundweavers podcast. 
If you enjoyed our show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and most other major podcast platforms. We hope that you'll visit us at www.soundweaverscast.com. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Soundweaverscast, and on Twitter at SWChambercast, where you'll get episodes as soon as they drop, show notes, and regular updates. This podcast is produced by Nicholas Yelenowskis and engineered by Evan Henry. As always, I am your host, Rosanna Moore. Our theme music was composed by Evan Henry and recorded by the Soundweavers founders. The music you heard in today's episode was composed by our guest, Arthur Keegan, and comes from his song cycles, Elegies for Emma and Elegies for Tom, that were discussed in the episode. On behalf of the Soundweavers cast, we'll see you next episode.